So this morning, we're on the uh, passage of Scripture following on from these amazing truths that have been revealed to us through the Apostle Paul. And we have here Paul's prayer for this church in Ephesus. Ephesus was perhaps the second, third largest city uh, after Rome in the world at that time. It was a very cosmopolitan, uh, prosperous city. It was a center of, of commerce and pilgrimage. Uh, there were those who came to uh, uh, worship at the temple of, of Diana. It was a, a city where there was great prosperity, but there was also great decadence and uh, moral uh, corruption. It was a, a center of commerce uh, for that area of Asia Minor. And as Paul thought about the situation that the church found itself in that city, here he is making known his thoughts, his concerns, his prayers for the believers and for the testimony of the church in that great uh, city. And he begins with thanksgiving. He said, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in you in my prayers. It's amazing how many passages of Scripture speak about thanksgiving. Um, I was reading one commentary. It said 138 passages of Scripture focus on this aspect of thanksgiving. An old preacher of the past said, uh, a grateful mind is a great mind. And here he says that he's thankful and doesn't cease to give thanks as he thought about those believers there in Ephesus. Now, why, you know, was he so thankful for them? Was it perhaps because they prayed for him? Perhaps they supported him uh, financially? Well, no. He makes it clear it is because of the evidence of God's gracious working in their lives. He says, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord. Now, of course, you know, five years earlier, he'd been there and God had used him so mightily that the city was turned upside down. The, uh, the artisans said that, you know, they were going to go out of business, that this message of the gospel that was being proclaimed there had such impact there that the city was shaken. And so Paul, you know, remembers those two and a half, three years that he spent there and the mighty things that the Spirit of God did in and through his life. And now he's in prison, he's under house arrest in Rome, and clearly he's had word again of how the church is continuing to, to grow, and so he gives thanks at the news of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I think back over the years that I've uh, worked with an organization that is involved in gospel ministry around the world, it was my privilege to work in uh, West Africa and, and in Ivory Coast. I can remember doing some of those early surveys, especially in the northern part of the country where there was nobody had ever been that we know of in history uh, to share this message of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can remember traveling for hundreds and hundreds of miles, seeing these mud huts with their grass roofs, and, and just thinking about all these people 
who had never, ever heard of Jesus. And then as the Lord gave us teams and moved into these situations and, and learned language and began to translate God's Word and, and began to teach God's Word, the transformation that had taken place in the lives of individuals and then the impact that is had upon the uh, society at large. I think about the uh, Laurent people and just recently, the end of uh, August there, where they had a baptism and 75 new converts uh, put their, uh, evidenced their faith in Christ through uh, baptism. A few years ago, I was out there uh, in the uh, Palika people working on a project there. I, I remember when there were no believers there, and yet today there are hundreds of believers, and at the same time as we're worshiping here this morning, so they too will be worshiping. And as you think about, you know, what God did there in His transforming work through the gospel, you know, my heart just fills and is overwhelmed with thanksgiving uh, to God for this amazing work that He alone is able to do in transforming the lives of lost men and women. I remember taking a, a short-term team out to Thailand, um, like uh, Paul and Naomi are going to do, I think, next summer. And uh, up into the hills of, of, of Thailand there, and going into a, a particular people group where some of our missionaries had worked and labored from the 1950s where they'd gone there, where these people were, were totally uh, bound up in their uh, spirit worship. Uh, they were addicted to, to opium. They were unproductive. But the gospel had such an impact amongst the Loire people there that I remember going to uh, the uh, church service in a village on the Sunday morning. 60% of the community was in church. And more than two-thirds of this people group, the Loire, had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were productive. You know, they were uh, people who were involved in business. They were involved in government. People that had been transformed through this wonderful message of the gospel. And here is Paul thanking God for his amazing work in the believers there in Ephesus. And then the second evidence of God's gracious working in their lives that Paul gives thanks for here is, he says, in your love towards all the saints. The outworking of this upward relationship to God was seen in their relationship, their horizontal relationship with other believers. And the words of Jesus come to mind, you know, where he said there that by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And this is a, another one of the remarkable changes that we witnessed uh, in the Laurent and in the Palika people. You know, where people were, were extremely individual uh, people were, were, were fearful. They were, you know, careful about, you know, who they would speak to, who they would involve. And they were fearful of people working magic and uh, casting spells and sorcery. Uh, and so there was a, a real harshness in those uh, societies. And then when people had come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, how there was a caring there was consideration, 
You know, there were people who were looking out for other people besides themselves. This evidence of God's gracious working in lives. So here we have Paul beginning his prayer in thanksgiving for God's gracious work amongst his people in the city of Ephesus. And you'll notice here that his thanksgiving is on the spiritual dimension of life, saved lives, changed lives. All too often, our thanksgiving to God is, is holy in the, the physical and, and the temporal aspects of our, our life. We're thankful for physical health and strength and medical interventions when we've been unwell, for our daily necessities of, of life, for homes, for shelter, for clothing. And it, it's right to be thankful for all these things. God's Word says, give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we're, we're not so readily attuned to be thanking God for the aspects of His spiritual work in the lives of men and women. And we need, again, to have our horizons open to see the, the spiritual realm in which we've been put. We're living in the heavenlies, the, the, the realm of the, of the Spirit where God has placed us to engage in the spiritual battle that He has called us to. Then we see here that His thanksgiving is followed by intercession for the Ephesian believers. It was Scroggy who wrote, Thanksgiving is for the foundation already laid, but intercession is for the superstructure going up. Thanksgiving is for past attainments, but intercession is for future advancements. Thanksgiving is for the actual in their experience. Intercession is for the possible in God's purposes for them. And so here, Paul's intercession is for the possible in God's purposes for them. So he says there in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe? And so here we have this prayer for spiritual enlightenment and understanding. Such enlightenment that the reality of things that are unseen and eternal would outshine the hypnotic dazzle of things that are visible and temporal. He's praying that they will understand what God has done for them. He's just spoken about it in those earlier verses. He wants them to understand what their new position is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to understand when God saved them, what was His purpose and plan for their lives. 
He wants them to understand the spiritual blessings that they now possess from being in him. Randolph Hearst was a, a, a media magnet um, who had made you know, millions and millions. In fact, he was a, he was a, a billionaire. And uh, he chose to uh, invest some of his money in great works of art. He heard about two pieces of art that really struck his attention and uh, decided that he wanted them. And so he hired his agent to find out where these paintings were and, and then to purchase them for his collection. Well, several months later, the agent came back to him and, and told him that he'd found them and that actually he already owned them and that they were in his possession in his warehouse and that he'd had them uh, for a number of years. But he'd forgotten what he'd already bought and owned. He'd been frantically searching for treasure that he already possessed. And it's easy for us as believers through neglect of God's Word to be searching for things and to be ignorant of things that we ought to know and what God has blessed us with. He says that in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then again in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, he said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So here, as Paul is praying for these believers, he's praying, God, open their minds, enlighten their minds. May your spirit of wisdom and of revelation bring to their minds, he said, first of all, the knowledge of him, and then that their eyes might be enlightened to understand God's purposes. And there are four truths here that Paul is praying for this church, truths that Paul clearly felt were absolutely vital to the health of the individuals and the church corporately. First of all, he is praying that they might have the spirit of wisdom and knowledge of revelation in the knowledge of him, of God himself. And then he says there in verse 18, first part, that their hearts would be, their hearts would be enlightened to, to know the hope to which he has called you. And then he says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Understanding these truths would have a vital impact on their lives as individuals and as a church. You see, he's not praying here for more education, but for enlightenment. These truths can only be understood through the illuminating work of God's Holy Spirit. Fundamental to right behavior 
and right conduct in our lives is right belief. The heart and mind must be changed for real growth to take place in our lives. Remember in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he tells us that we shouldn't be conformed to this world, to its thinking, to its ideology, to its goals and purposes. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewal of the mind. Remember, um, in 1996, when I left Ivory Coast, supposedly, uh, for a time of furlough, and then I was to return there, but then I got caught up in the, uh, the work at North Coast there. But um, when I went back to Ivory Coast in the year 2000, and uh, went up north to see this new church that had been brought to birth amongst the Palika, I remember four years earlier there were no believers, and then wonderfully, to stood under these trees where the uh, new believers were sat there, and I was able to share something in French, and somebody translated it into Palika. But then afterwards, Alan took me around the village and introduced me individually to many of those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the old Muslim man who sat every night listening to the teaching with his blind eyes, couldn't see. And the people were fearful uh, of this man because Alphok said, you know, we could take him and have his, uh, these cataracts removed out of his eyes and he would see again. I said, oh, no, we don't want that to happen. You don't know how bad this guy was. But he had his spiritual uh, eyes illuminated and uh, was a totally transformed man. And then I remember uh, the different ones testifying about how that they had uh, more money in their pockets. And I thought, what in the world has that got to do with uh, their newfound faith in Jesus Christ? But then I realized they were no longer in bondage to the spirits and running off to the fetisher or the diviner, the witch doctor, trying to, you know, buy the favor of the spirits. They'd been delivered by the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their confidence was, was in him. They knew they, they were new creatures in him. They were no longer in, in, in fear. So they had more money in their pockets, just a, a little evidence of this transforming work. And here, you know, as Paul prays that they might understand the position into which God has, has brought them, he begins by praying here that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul here is praying that they would grow in their knowledge of God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not that they would grow in their academic knowledge of the character and attributes of God, although all those things are wonderful to know. But he's praying that theirs might be an experimental, an experiential knowledge of God working in and through their lives. It says in knowing Him, and who he is and what he's done for us, to appreciate his attitude and, and care for us, that then we reciprocate and grow in our love for him and respond in love to him. It is as we experience a relationship with him as our savior and, and friend and comforter and guide that we gladly 
own him as Lord and Master. To obey and serve him is not an onerous task, but it is an opportunity to worship him in all my actions and attitudes. In uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, uh, to the Father through him. Again, in verse 23, whatsoever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 says, So whether you eat or drink, offer whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything that I do, from the most mundane to the most aspirational uh, desire or act of service, is an opportunity to bring joy to the heart of God who loves me, watches over me, and cares for me. You see, it's in this relationship uh, with Him that it, it brings consistency to our lives. You know, we're not worried about what everybody else is thinking. I'm living to please Him. It brings a, a determination for excellence in all that I do. It brings joy. It brings gladness. No sacrifice is too great to make for Him. It leads to an intimacy with God and a, a companionship in working with Him and knowing His will and, and experiencing Him at work and His power in and through our lives. So Paul prays that they might have a, a spirit of wisdom to know God personally, experientially. And then he goes on to says that your eyes might be enlightened, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This request then is that they might understand what God had in mind for them when he called them to himself through the gospel. Yes, it's wonderful that our sins are forgiven, but God has planned so much more, both for now and for all eternity. Remember Jesus' words in John 14 and verse 3. He said there to his disciples, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. God's desire, he wants us to be there with him. He is coming with the purpose of taking us to himself, that we can enjoy him, that our citizenship can be fully realized in his presence. We read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And again, this, you know, God has predestined us to be like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His working in us is to make us like him. I wonder when you reflect on your ambitions for your life, 
You know, what you are seeking to be, what you are seeking to achieve. Is it in line with God's purpose in making us more like the Lord Jesus Christ? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we read there, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, bed, from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I wonder how much of our time is spent dwelling upon this inheritance that he's prepared for us in the future. You see, it's in understanding his eternal purposes, his heavenly rewards, that I'm kept from unnecessary preoccupation, chasing this world's treasures, its latest toys, its latest designer gear. And my heart becomes focused on laying up treasures in heaven and not on this earth. Romans 8 verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whatever difficulties, whatever sufferings, whatever sacrifices we experience in this life as we live and serve our Savior, we're confident that there is a glory that is to be revealed that will never end. We will live in endless bliss in our Savior's presence. You know, we live in a world where the current concerns are for the planet. We have the threat of global warming, uh, plastic pollution, extinction of uh, species, and, and ends all the, the efforts that we hear of trying to uh, save the planet. But what the creation is looking for is not for mankind to save the planet. In Romans 8 verse 19, it says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. And then in verse 21, he goes on to say, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation is waiting for the revelation of us, the sons of God, that we are going to come back with Jesus uh, to reign in this world. And it's at that time that the creation will be set free from its current curse, chaos, and misuse. God will do it. Philippians 3 verse 21 says, The Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Don't know whether you're struggling with any particular ailments, whether you've had artificial joints put in or whatever. At that time, there'll be no need for any of these things. There'll be no sickness, there'll be no illness, there'll be no diabetes, there'll be no uh, pacemakers, there'll be no COVID. We will have a new body like unto us, incorruptible. We could go on for God's plans for us. Revelation 5 says we will reign with Christ in his coming kingdom. 
Revelation 19 says, we will be the guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 21 says, we will walk the streets of the New Jerusalem. And Jude 24 says, Jesus is going to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This, these are God's plans for us. These are the, the blessings that we've inherited by being in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul is praying, Lord, enlighten their minds to understand just what you've done and what your plans are for your people. That it would, you know, deal with the issues of our attraction to this life. That it would deliver us from being mesmerized, enchanted and entangled by our earthly lives and its attractions. To keep the things of eternity clearly in focus and setting our affections on things above and things to come. Paul continues, he prays for their enlightenment to understand what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So having prayed for their understanding of, of what awaits them and of their future inheritance, he speaks here of his inheritance in the saints. And it's, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, inspires Paul to write about it. He could have just wrote his inheritance. You might understand that you are, as individuals, as a church, you are his inheritance. But that's not sufficient for how God views his inheritance. He speaks about his inheritance is in you, the saints. And then he says, no, no, that's not enough. It's, it's his glorious inheritance in his saints. And if that's not enough, he goes, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. God considers us his inheritance. You see, he paid an enormous price his son came into this world, clothed himself in humanity, the eternal son of God, in order that he might become the sacrifice that would pay for our sins on the cross at Calvary. When he hung there, when his blood drained from his body there, he was paying the price of our wrongdoing, of the sin of the world. The punishment that we deserved was laid on Jesus. An enormous, incomprehensible price was paid that you and I might have our sins forgiven, that we might become his children, his family, his inheritance. Why are individuals like Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Lord Sugar. Why, why, why are they considered great and esteemed by the world? Is it not because of their enterprise and the great wealth that they've amassed? It's their fortune that has brought them great fame. And God will get great eternal glory because of his enterprise because of his investment, because of his sacrifice 
in making us his prized and treasured possessions, bought with the precious blood of Christ. And throughout eternity, as we read last week in Ephesians, we will be there to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Never lose a sense of wonder of what God has done to bring you to himself and to make you one of his glorious treasures. When life is tough and we find ourselves wondering, why is God allowing this to happen in my life? There are things that just seem so unreasonable, hardships that we face, and we think, where is God in this situation? Don't forget, we are His glorious inheritance, and He's working in our lives, preparing us to reveal His glory throughout the ages of the ages, throughout eternity. I love that old hymn that said, when He cometh, when he cometh to make up his jewels, all his jewels, precious jewels, his loved and his own. Like the stars of the morning, there his bright crown adorning, they shall shine in their beauty, bright gems for his crown. We've seen the crown, the imperial crown this week a lot, with incredible jewels, not to be compared with what God is doing in his inheritance. We are the objects of that divine love, his eternal treasures, mined from the pit of sin and degradation and darkness, but being shaped and polished, jewels to reflect the radiance of his glory, his inheritance. Fourthly and quickly, he prays here that they might be enlightened to recognize the reality of the power of God. In the Old Testament, the measure of God's power was seen in God's creation. Or, it was often referred to in the miraculous deliverance of Israel from Egypt as God parted the uh, uh, Red Sea. But in the New Testament, the measure of God's power is measured by the resurrection of Jesus. And so we read here in the second part of verse 19, it is according to the working of his great power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Never before had there been such a manifestation of divine power as the power that was involved in raising Jesus from the dead, from the powers of Satan and sin. Jesus was raised by the power of God. And, you know, Paul here is seeking to emphasize the, you know, the power, the energy, he uses four uh, different terms here. He uses dynamis, uh, from which we get dynamo, dynamite. He uses energia, working as in energy. He talks about kratos, mighty power, ischus, power. And Paul's prayer is that we might understand this is 
the measure of God's power that he wants to manifest and work through our lives. As we reflect on this prayer this morning, it's a wonderful prayer. I pray this prayer quite frequently, especially for some of the young churches around the world where we work there. But it's a prayer that each one of us can enrich our own lives with as, as we pray for a deeper personal knowledge, an experimental, experiential knowledge of the Lord Jesus in our lives day by day. That we might be enlightened uh, to understand the eternal purposes of God that He has uh, for our lives, to lift our horizons from this life and to reflect on the eternal life to be revealed. That we appreciate the value that God sets upon us as His inheritance, that He's shaping us, that we're going to be there to the praise of His glory throughout eternity. And then to understand the power of God at work in our lives, without which, Jesus says, you can do nothing. So that we're not just going through the motions, but we're experiencing the reality of God's power in and through our lives. That we as individuals and corporately as a church might impact the city in which we live. Amen.